This is Brandy, written by Kyle Brooks and based on the screenplay of the same name. Episode 4. It's all just cranberry. We would like to remind listeners there are depictions of sexual violence throughout this story. Our top story this morning, a young couple is being found murdered in their own home at some point in the early hours of last night. Detectives from Maricopa County Sheriff's Department are currently on the scene and are urging all residents in the area to ensure their windows and doors are locked at all times overnight. Detectives have informed us it is not clear at this stage if this was a random or targeted attack. We will continue to follow the story as it develops. Also, problems for farmers this morning with issues due to... 1973. Harry Bronny's reign of terror throughout Arizona began with the home invasion of Ricardo and Maria Gonzalez. In total, he would commit 13 homicides between 1973 and 1978. Detectives at the time were baffled. They were now dealing with an individual who would attack as and when he liked under the cover of darkness, with no obvious links between victims. The only connection detectives had was the killer's macabre and obscene nature at these crime scenes. My name is Detective Clarence Lloyd, retired. I was a homicide detective for Maricopa County Sheriff's Department. I was head of the Rude Ripper case. On May 26, 1973, I was called with my partner at the time to an address in Chandler. All I knew going into the home was there was a male and female found murdered at the address. We estimated time of death was sometime between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. the previous night. The male was found dead in the bedroom with a gunshot wound just above the temple and the female was found in the living room bound and her throat slit to the point of almost decapitation. There were also indications of sexual assault. The first thing that hit me was this wasn't a robbery gone bad. Nothing was touched in the home, no signs of any ransacking. It was just purely a massacre on these two individuals. I also remember the female being in a far worse state than the male. From what we could work out was that the male had been shot whilst sleeping in bed, you know, quick execution. But he had taken his time with the female. It was obvious that that was where he took his rage out. Aside from the slit throat, there were stab wounds to the vaginal area, her buttocks and her nipples had been cut off. I'd never seen anything like that before. I haven't seen anything like that since. We found no prints in the house or around the house. We knew the killer used a 22 caliber pistol from the shell found in the Gonzalez bedroom. It was also identified that the intruder removed a screen at the rear of the house and in total darkness. It was clear that he knew where he was going and the layout of the house. We assumed at that point we were dealing with someone the Gonzalez couple knew or certainly Maria knew. It just wasn't fathomable that this was random. The amount of hate in that crime scene. Things just didn't happen like that at random. We played with ideas of if Mrs. Gonzalez was having an affair, was it a disgruntled ex-lover? 
Were there any issues between man and wife at the home? We spoke to the family's work colleagues, neighbors, and we came up with nothing. They were a newly married, happy young couple who were full of life and looking to start a family. Nobody had seen anything. We had nothing. Remember, this was way before DNA advancements, but we knew he was a non-secretor. Aside from a shell casing, we had zilch. We didn't even have a suspect, and we just found ourselves going in circles with the same questions not being answered. Do you still believe in God? What difference would that make now? But Gonzalez, that was the first one, right? The, the first time? Yeah. Yeah, the Chandler incident, that was the first time. Tell me about it. Come on. You've read the report, Ken. I'll bet you've even spoken to the sheriff's department about this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I want to hear it from you. It doesn't say why you chose them. I mean, I can tell you why, but it's not my job. Remember, you tell me. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Uh, again. It was a bad day at the office. Uh, it was a Tuesday. I was on my way home when this Latino woman completely cut me up on the freeway. She cut me up like I didn't even exist. I got alongside her and called her out, but she just flipped me off. I saw red. I said, no more. It was like all of society's values went out the window in that one moment. All that hate and rage and fantasy came all together. I followed her. I remember while I was following her, I was thinking of a strategy. It was anger, but rational, controlled. The whole time I was thinking, thinking about what I would do to her. I didn't second guess what I was doing once. Not once did I think, go just get off this freeway and go back home. I didn't even think that. It was like I gave in to what I wanted. It was like getting into a warm bath for me. I followed her to a residence in Chandler. I doubled around and then parked up two blocks away, thereabouts. And I just watched the house for a few hours. Watched who came, who went. So what time the husband came home, what time he left. They had any dogs, anything that would disrupt me. I did that for probably two nights, two nights or so after work. And then I attacked them. The, the night of the attack, I, I rolled, I let, the, I let the car roll to a halt about a block from the house to make sure there was no noise. I took the 22 my gloves and a ski mask from the trunk and I went around to the backyard. I forgot how easy it was 
to actually remove a screen panel. I did that in a couple of minutes. Uh, then I went inside, let my eyes adjust to the darkness for a moment. I knew where the bedroom was and knew all of that. When I was inside, I saw the male and female asleep. I put the 22 to his head, just, just above it, just above his left ear here, just above the left ear. And I pulled the trigger. He died instantly from what I could see. The woman then woke up screaming. I remember I slapped her across the face and said something. I can't remember. Don't scream, bitch, or I'll cut your fucking head off. Or something. I just remember saying, don't, don't, don't shout, don't scream, bitch. But she just kept shouting, is he dead? Did you, did you kill him? Did you kill him? Did you kill him? I hit her again with the butt of the 22 and told her to shut the fuck up. It kind of became more subdued after that and surprisingly calm. I then tied her hands behind her back, dragged her into the living room, put on the television, put the volume up. I remember uh, an Alice Cooper video was on at the time. I don't know why that always stuck out in my head, but... I then, um... Go on. I then raped her. I asked if she remembered me. I told her what she did would be the worst and last mistake she ever made. I sodomized her. After that, she begged, but I felt nothing. I then stuck my knife in her throat and cut and sliced back and forth until it nearly fell off her shoulders. I left after that, um, after I felt satisfied with that. What about what you did to the body afterwards, cutting off the nipples, stab wounds to the vagina, etc.? That was just humiliation. I just wanted her to be found like that. The horror would continue to spread into the homes across Maricopa County throughout the summer of 73. The only consistencies law enforcement had to work with was a .22 caliber pistol and unprecedented violence in the crime scenes. No apparent links between victims. No link between homes. No link between race. No link between age. The attacks would range from weekly to monthly to yearly, but they never stopped. It didn't stop. I was working 16 hours a day on this seven days a week. The leads were getting thinner and thinner, and we were just waiting for him to slip up. Then he would go away and it would go cold. Then he'd come back and the number of cases, victims, families, were going up and up and and you feel powerless to do anything about it. This was before he was ever known as the Rude Ripper. 
<laughs> that didn't come until after his capture. At that point in time, the media had dubbed him the Maricopa Mauler. The Dupree attack. That was when media started to get really involved and gave him his first name of the Maricopa Mauler. And it was definitely the worst for me. That was attack number four and was the last one before he disappeared. But that was definitely the most violent crime scene. We got the call when the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Dupree came to their residence to collect them for church that Sunday morning. She noticed that the front door had been left open a crack and the lights were still on inside. She could also hear the television at a very loud volume, which she thought was very strange. She made her way inside and found the body of her father lying in the hallway, a, a gunshot wound to the front of the head, and her mother was found in the living room where she had succumbed to her injuries. The blood was completely soaked into the carpet. I mean, the whole area around the body was just blood, and there was a broken wine bottle next to the body. It appeared the intruder had smashed this against the table and then used it on the victim. Again, a 22 had been used in what appeared to be another random attack in the early hours of the morning, so we were convinced it was our guy. We believed he was working alone, but still, he left no prints in any part of the house. The media and the public were now really chasing us for any information we had on this suspect, and you can imagine the pressure on us to reassure the community that everything was being done to find this individual. But then, he disappeared. There were no more attacks. We, we thought he's dead, disabled, or in prison for some other offense. How wrong we were. Harry, the first time I came on board for this story was after the Dupree killings. I came on board and then you disappeared for several years. You just stopped. It was thought you were dead or otherwise incapacitated. Yeah, I did stop after that incident. You did. Clarence Lloyd said it was the worst out of all the crime scenes. What can you tell me about that? Okay, first of all, that was the old me. After I finished an attack, depending on what it was and its severity, I felt okay for a while, like I had my fix. But like any addiction, the more you do it, the more often it gets. And it's a little bit of a blur now, but it was the principle at the time. This victim, Mrs. Dupree, this victim got to me more than any other. She not only offended me, she offended my wife. How? Emma was heavily pregnant at the time. She was having these cravings for cranberry sauce. She loved cranberry. She put it on anything. One afternoon after work, she asked me to pick up some cranberry sauce from the store. I get to the corner store, find one jar of cranberry sauce left. Just one. I'm about to pick it up. And this woman snatches it from me. Takes it right from my grip almost. I calmly said that I was just about to take that. She had this very, very aggressive attitude. 
this untouchable attitude that automatically made me feel like she was the one. She said, uh, yeah, yeah, she said she'd, she'd already been to two stores and they'd run out. She wasn't going to go to another. I said, that's no excuse for pushing my hand out of the way. I even tried to level with her and tell her it was from my pregnant wife, but I was getting nowhere with that. Things slightly escalated when I told her that by taking that, she would give me a shit time. So consequently, I would give her her shit time. She just said, fuck you and kept on walking with a cranberry. I told her she was very rude, but nothing. So I followed her for a while. I waited in my car outside of the store and waited until I saw her come out. Once she did, I followed her, kept my distance on the freeway till we arrived in a very, a very nice suburb and found falls. I kept my strategy. I watched. We waited. I planned. I fantasized. It didn't go perfectly the plan as the the other incidents. Um, as it, this time, when I got inside the home, I was disturbed by her partner. I used a cushion of the twenty-two and shot him in the head, point blank range, before he could react. After that, I made my way to the bedroom and grabbed her by the neck and forced her into the living room area. Put on the television, turned up the volume, usual. I sodomized her, but that wasn't enough this time. Uh, I was too angry, it didn't, um, let's say it didn't really work. I was so enraged. I actually took an empty wine bottle that was on the dining table and smashed it against the table. Uh, I put my hand over her mouth and um, used the broken wine bottle on her. The blood was everywhere. Just fell the carpet. I then went to the kitchen, searched the cabinets and took back the cranberry. Funny thing is, by the time I got cleaned up and got home, Emma was so pissed off with me that when I passed the cranberry jar across the table, she just let it slide right off the end and smash into pieces. Felt like it was all for nothing. It's all just cranberry. Wow. Wow. You said it was like an addiction. So how did you just stop after that attack? Well, like any addiction, I had a reason to stop. Every addiction, you need a reason to stop. 
And my reason was my daughter was born. I couldn't be going out and doing these things anymore. First time I held my daughter was the moment I said, I can't do this anymore. I can't let it win anymore. As I say, it was horrendous. I can't imagine the pain and suffering that woman went through during her ordeal. Her lower region was pretty much destroyed. That's how the pathologist described it. Sorry, it's uh, it's still difficult to talk about all these years later. So he disappeared after that and leaving us with nothing. I knew he'd be back. He was going to slip up sooner or later. It was just awful that more of these horrific crimes would have to happen before he did. So Harry said the birth of his daughter was the only reason these malicious attacks across Maricopa County stopped. Was it because he actually wanted to stop or was it because it would now be a lot harder to conceal his secret life? I personally think it was the latter. But also a burning question was, how did he keep it a secret for so long? How did he explain his activities to a pregnant wife waiting at home? He was good. He was a great liar. He could think fast. I still don't even know how much of what he told me was fact or BS. During my conversation with Aver, we did bring up the subject family life and any changes she remembers in him during that time of his life. It was the birth of my niece. Of course, I remember it well. He was in love with that child from the first moment he held her. I suppose, thinking back, Emma went into labor just after the fourth attack. I remember the attack stopped after that. There was nothing on the news about it after she was born. We were all in the room after she was born. Me, Noah, Harry, Emma, and now baby Ava. He told me he named her after the only real motherly figure he had had in his life. Me. It feels so strange looking at it now. All that emotion he showed, all that love, and now he's going to be dead in a few days. Do you think that he stopped because he wanted to? No. If he wanted to stop, he would have never come back. I think the only reason he stopped was because he had a family to take care of now. It all made sense after his capture. He could get around Emma, naive as she was, with saying that he had to work night shifts at the USPS or that he was doing overtime. Sometimes he used to lie that he had to work at different depots to help with the manpower. And she believed him. Why wouldn't we believe him? He was the perfect husband, and the whole time he was out there doing these things. The whole family had to carry that guilt for the victims that were we never questioned anything. By the time the baby Ava was born, he couldn't do that anymore. He had to be on hand all the time. 
As soon as Harry was staying at home, the attack stopped. How could we be so stupid? That's what most people thought anyway. But as I say, he was my baby brother. And I could never see him as this monster in the news. But that's exactly what he was. I knew it wouldn't be too long before we heard from him again. It was just the feeling that he was not done yet. The crimes were getting worse, and he was getting more confident with doing them. Now that we know he stopped due to the birth of his daughter, it all makes sense. It lines up just after the Dupree murders. There's something real haunting about that image. The scenes that I saw in the aftermath of what he had done in that house, and then to imagine him cradling this this newborn baby in his arms. It shouldn't compute. It's not human. So time went on. Cases became colder. And then I get a call from a deputy telling me he's back. Next time on Brandy. What effect did becoming a father have on you? It stopped me for a few years. You can say that. I asked the deputy, what message? And he says, he gave his name. Clarence. He gave his name. What? Something didn't add up. He believed this would be the the last time he would ever see them. And he needed them out of the house before it all went to hell on that street. 